Good morning, everyone. Everyone's so wide awake. This is great. I'm usually not a morning person. So um, I'm Brian Kaufman. I'm going to be spending the next hour with you. Um, and so, as you see, we're going to be talking about trauma-informed approach to chronic pain. Uh, so I was seated in one of my exam rooms, and I was making eye contact with my patient's husband. He was looking at me, kind of desperate, apologetic, because just moments before, his wife, my patient, had stormed out of the exam room, cursing me, saying words I'm not going to repeat. And he's looking at me, and finally he says, I'm really sorry, and he leaves. And I never saw either of them again. Now, up until that moment, things seemed to be going fine. We were having kind of our usual visit, where she was telling me she's doing well, all of these things. And then I did what I always do, and I brought up, okay, how are you doing with the smoking? How are you doing with counseling? Are you going? Are you exercising? Which were pretty germane to her medical issues. She had bad vascular disease. She was a young woman with bad vascular disease and a lot of pain, secondary to that. And as soon as I started bringing up these fairly important topics for us to discuss, she started to become more agitated. She started to escalate in terms of how she was speaking with me. She became hostile, um, started to go on about you know, how I don't understand what it's like to have chronic pain. I don't know what it's like to have any problems because I'm this big, rich doctor, and all of these things. And I was trying to interject at times, and she was speaking over me. And I felt myself getting all escalated getting agitated, till finally I raised my voice. And I said, can you please stop talking over me? And that was the impetus for me getting called some names and her storming out. And so I should have been relieved because we had had a lot of interactions that were unpleasant. I should have felt like there's one less person on my schedule who I'm going to look at it in the morning and go, oh, no, I can't believe they're coming in. All right. Um, but instead, I felt bad. And I continued to feel bad. And when I looked back and thought about other interactions I had with other patients that had similar overtones, I started to see a pattern. So the conventional wisdom when dealing with pain patients is to be direct. And especially in our present time of the opiate mania and all of this, to be very direct, to be clear, to be paternalistic, to be firm. Um, and I'm originally from New York, so I don't typically have a problem with that. Um, but when I moved to New England, I found out very quickly that doesn't work up there that, I mean, there were times I was being nice to a nurse or something, and you know, she reported me to her supervisor and thought I was somehow being mean. So 
there must be something about the way we speak in New York that really you know, gets people in New England going. But I think the patients that we're going to talk about have similar ways of interacting with that kind of approach. And what I found was even with my, you know, my non-traumatized patients, that even there, uh, I think the message wasn't always getting through. There wasn't good communication between the patient and myself, and they weren't necessarily getting what they needed out of it. And I, in turn, was getting irritated and burnt out and short-tempered and all of these things. So, uh, so when I say trauma or PTSD, trauma-informed care, what words, what images, what thoughts come to mind? Just shout out an answer. Life-threatening event based in the past, yeah. Anything else? Aces. Aces, good, very good. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Anything else? Medical problems. Medical problems. Yeah, lots of them. Domestic violence. Domestic violence, uh, common cause of trauma and PTSD. Good. So, sounds like... Everyone here is pretty familiar with the concept. So, so we'll talk about trauma. So what is trauma? It's described as a deeply distressing, disturbing experience. Bessel van der Kolk, if you know who he is, uh, writes about it and says trauma is a result of exposure, an inescapable event that overwhelms the nervous system. The word trauma comes from the Greek for wound and indeed There are both physical, mental, and emotional wounds that go along with trauma. And this does indeed lead to some profound medical issues, in particular chronic pain, and in particular substance use disorder. And someone mentioned the ACEs. So just to be complete, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Events. And there was the ACEs trial that was done between 1995 and 1997. Uh, It was co-produced with the CDC and Kaiser Permanente in the West Coast. And what they did was they took 17,000 people and they gave them questionnaires that talked about um, and asked questions of past trauma as well as their current health problems uh, mental health, all this, and they collected all that data. And what they ended up finding was that almost two-thirds of their group of 17,000 patients reported at least one adverse childhood event, with greater than one in five reporting three or greater. And they were able to quantify this and put it into uh, a calculation. You can look at ACEs calculators and things like that. You can download them. And essentially, the take-home message is, as the number of ACEs increase, so do issues with 
people's physical health, with their mental health, with their chronic pain. And so when people experience, whoa, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was doing that. Uh, when people experience trauma, they sometimes develop PTSD. Most often within three months of the inciting event, sometimes later, some people have been reported to develop PTSD after just hearing about something traumatic. So it can take surprisingly little. But some of the common causes that are listed are childhood physical abuse, sexual violence, physical assault, combat exposure, being threatened with a weapon, accident, fire, natural disaster, mugging, robbery, plane crash, torture, kidnapping, life-threatening medical diagnosis. So it could be everything from the parents are getting divorced and it's a little bit messy to lifetime music, you know, movie of the week kind of trauma um, to all kinds of things. Um, it could be the person who has an unexpected medical illness or maybe their loved one has one and they feel traumatized. So it can take surprisingly little and it's characterized by three main things. Intrusive thoughts, avoidance, and negative thoughts and feelings. So intrusive thoughts are, just like it sounds, repeated involuntary memories, dreams, flashbacks, thoughts that people are not in control of. Avoidance is where people avoid triggers that make them feel whatever they feel when they're feeling traumatized. Um, and they may start to avoid situations, events, places, people that remind them of that trauma, even if it has really no connection that we may see. And negative thoughts and feelings, so distorted beliefs about themselves and others. Um, the doctor doesn't care, I'm bad, you know, all of these things. And when people have these symptoms, it leads to arousal, okay, what we call hyperarousal. And this can lead to impulsivity, compulsivity, and this is some of the stuff that we may see with our patients. If they're really traumatized, and we'll talk a little bit about why, um, and they perceive a threat to their life at some point, they may actually go so far beyond arousal that they're into hypoarousal. They may be blunted. They may have a smaller emotional palate. So patients may have poor motivation because of that. They may not seem like they're interested in their, their own care. Um, they may be irritable. They may have angry outbursts, reckless behavior, self-destructive, easily startled, concentration problems, sleeping problems, memory problems. They may be challenging to form a connection with. They may no-show because they're avoidant. There may be a high degree of somatic symptoms, and typically there are, and higher than average rate of substance use disorder. And the last little thing that I noted there was that these patients often get dismissed by a lot of medical professionals in all sorts of situations. And uh, I don't mean to pick on the emergency department, but that's a big place where people's complaints get dismissed when they come in this way. Okay.
So, let's talk a little bit about the neurobiological changes observed during trauma. So, two key areas to keep in mind. Um, the prefrontal cortex, or what we call the uh, frontal area, right here. And this area here, which we can call the limbic system. Okay? And there are multiple structures in each different area, but these two serve two very different functions. So we'll talk about the limbic system. Ah, there we go. We'll talk about the limbic system a little bit. Um, nucleus accumbens, basal ganglia, all these things. I'm not here to give you a lesson in neuroanatomy, but I do want us to understand where some of these behaviors, thoughts, feelings come from. So the limbic system is an instinctual system. It's old. It's our reptilian system. It's fast acting. It gets us moving if we're in danger. It's what kicks in and tells us to stop doing something, to run, any of these things. And if it's an extreme situation, actually part of that system is where people will freeze. Um, so this is your sympathetic type situation, right? So sympathetic, fight or flight. And then if we go beyond sympathetic, it's freeze. So it, it is our source of emotional response. And some key structures to keep in mind there. The amygdala. So this is our threat assessor. So it kind of lives there and it's you know, wired into smell and sight and all this stuff. And uh, it's constantly receiving the data that our senses are giving it. And it's identifying where there are threats. There's the, there's the hippocampus, okay, and in particular the hypothalamus, which would be like right over here, which is sitting right on top of the pituitary stalk. So really there, going down to the pituitary. And through the pituitary, we get some of the neurohumoral responses. Now the frontal lobes, these are newer. These are less instinctual. This takes planning, proactivity. Okay, it's not reactive, it's proactive. This is where our planning comes from. This is where our consciousness really is. Um, it's a newer, embryologically and developmentally, a newer area of the brain. So whereas this area is older, reptilian, because reptiles have the, some of these same uh, brain structures, this is for humans and Similar animals. And so there are also neurotransmitters involved. Um, so the key ones to keep in mind, you probably all heard a lot about dopamine in your lectures or reading or studies or any of that. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter responsible for euphoria. And it's really important in folks with trauma because when folks have trauma, they end up with a depletion of dopamine, and that leads to dysphoria, okay? So low dopamine means feeling badly. People with trauma get low levels of endogenous opiates, so they have more pain. 
They get low serotonin, which again also gives you dysphoria. But there's also some spinal cord processes that are involved in pain transmission that use serotonin. So if your serotonin is low, it's affecting more than just behavior and mood. Um, it's often taking away some of the processes that help us have less pain. GABA, GABA aminobutyric acid, that's our hormone that keeps us relaxed. And if that's low, we feel panicky, we get anxiety. Uh, corticotropin releasing factor. So when we, we're talking about the limbic lobe, you know, sitting there, feeding into the pituitary, which releases corticorelasing factor, which then activates our catecholamine response and cortisol. When you have those hormones floating around, you feel stressed. Okay, so with that in mind, um, how am I doing on time? Anybody tell me what time it is? Thank you. All right, so we're doing good. Um, so I'll give you an example. So we'll talk a little bit about reward behavior because that's important for us to understand what's happening with our patients. Um, so typical patient presents, or you can think about yourself, um, maybe you have neck pain and a headache because of that. And you're walking around, oh, I slept weird, my neck hurts, I you know, have a crick in it, whatever. Where your patient comes in, tells you they have a pinched nerve, or their disc slipped again, or whatever it is they say. They say all this stuff to me. Um, and I just nod and go, okay. Um, so they have pain. And so the amygdala and some of the areas in the limbic lobe are looking for relief right, because they're uncomfortable. They're looking for relief. And the limbic lobe and some of the associated structures are interested in relief now. Not two days from now, not two months from now, but right now, in the next 10 minutes. And so it'll look around for ways that it can get that relief. So let's say this person is walking through their house and they see the bed or they see the couch. And they go, oh, if I lay down on that couch, I'm gonna feel so much better. And they lay down and they feel better. And so the reward circuitry has just learned, if I lay down, the pain goes away. And so next time they have the pain, they do this again. And maybe the neck pain turns into chronic pain. And so they're just, looking for every opportunity to lay down. But they have to live their life, they go to work, whatever. When they get home, lay down on the couch or lay down on the bed. Now, that's instinctual. We learn this and we seek it out because we want relief. But any of these processes that we activate or that we participate in that give us relief give you less relief as time goes by, the more you repeat it. Um, so in the case of the neck pain, the person who's always lying down to get relief, you know, next time maybe it works pretty good. You know, then a month later, it's not really doing much for their neck pain. And so they're still searching out this behavior. They're doing less. And what does that lead to? Doing less means you get atrophy. You get muscular 
discoordination, you get imbalance around a joint. If you're a fan of um, Yanda, the Czechoslovakian physical therapist, you get upper cross syndrome, where you get hypertonic muscles in the extensors and weakened and atrophied muscles in the flexors. Um, Every time they're laying down, they get a dopamine spike. And that's part of why they feel better. Repeated dopamine spikes actually lead to less dopamine. And in fact, less response to dopamine. So some of the receptors for dopamine will actually go inside the cell if you're always getting these spikes. This is what happens when people start using opiates for um, whatever their reasons are, really. Um, Whatever they're using them for, if they're getting repeated spikes of the opiate, they get triggered dopamine spikes. And over time, they get less response. And if they have less dopamine, right, they're going to have more pain. They're going to be more dysphoric. And all those other things that I already mentioned. They get kinesiophobia, right? Fear of movement. It's certainly one thing I see. I'm sure everybody here sees the same thing. Folks with chronic back pain, they they walk very carefully. And there may be nothing structurally wrong with their back. It may be all soft tissue. It may be myofascial. But they're very cautious with how they move. And that's part of the problem. So just an idea about chronic trauma. You know, people who are traumatized but then have these symptoms chronically because they have PTSD. So one example is imagine you're going to work in the morning and you're late for work. Maybe you start at 8 or 7 and you're kind of zipping along in your car, speeding, and all of a sudden you look in the rearview mirror because you haven't really been paying attention and you see flashing lights and you get that little jolt that little catecholamine surge. Um, maybe some people will actually get shaky. They'll start shaking. Some people will shut down. They won't talk. All these things happen. People who have PTSD are constantly having those types of symptoms. They're riding around perceiving the flashing lights in their rearview mirror all the time. And so they get a chronic release of stress hormones Over time, that leads to a change in allostatic load. Um, Allostatic load is just the summation of all the uh, information that's coming uh, into your body. So it can be somatic. It could be from the joints and the proprioceptors. It can be from from the limbic system, right? It can be your thoughts. It can be all kinds of things. And... If you have this chronic activation of stress hormones, if your limbic lobe is hyperactivated, you lose executive function. So it's interesting. When this is involved, this shuts down. So the limbic lobe, when it gets involved, the frontal cortex shuts down. You lose your ability to think critically. You lose executive function. Your memory gets worse. You can't access rest and repair effectively. Uh, People can get hypervigilant, always looking for a source of a threat. They're always scanning, where's the threat? And even when things remind them of a threat or even sound similar, any of those things, they can get triggered, like my patient. 
So when we're dealing with these folks, remember that. Remember also they can have sensory sensitivity. So when that's happening, when you've had you know, chronically elevated levels of uh, critical releasing factor and cortisol, you can get sound sensitivity, sight, you know, light sensitivity, smells, all these things. So when these people show up and they're there to see us or they go to the emergency department, they may be explaining these to the medical professionals. And it does seem like an exaggeration if you don't understand the physiology. So what's been studied? Um, actually, a lot of it's been studied. And because you're chronically activating cortisol, you're chronically activating these different hormones, areas of the brain physically change. You get structural changes that you can see on an MRI or functional changes on an fMRI. Um, it's in this particular study, um, what they found was that folks who were trauma exposed had smaller hippocampi. They had smaller left amygdalas, smaller uh, anterior cortex, so smaller areas here, smaller areas there, there because of chronic activation. This study showed that there was reduced cerebellar hemisphere volume with PTSD subjects. Um, in PEDS, uh, what they've found consistently is that they have smaller corpus callosums, which is the connections between the two hemispheres. So they're really not able to form as well uh, connections when they're experiencing new information. Um, they're not able to integrate it as well. Um, they'll have smaller uh, frontal areas as well. So they tend to be more impulsive. They tend to be more compulsive. Um, they have less ability to use critical thinking. They're dysregulated, right? If you're a child with this, you may get labeled a problem child, or you may you know, do poorly in school because you can't concentrate. Um, you may be labeled uh, unintelligent. And so these kids grow up, and they end up in our office as adults with substance use disorder, chronic pain, a million other things. And there are biochemical changes. So all of these basically just are showing you that it's been studied that with folks who have PTSD, you see significant changes in cortisol. Initially, it goes up, and then over time, you get depleted, and the levels go down. Um, when the levels go down, because it's a negative feedback loop, you now have lost the ability to regulate. You lose the brakes, right, because increased cortisol gives you a response, but it also inhibits the release of cortisol. If you have less levels, you don't have that. So less ability to really to, to, um, advocate for yourself, all of those things. You lose executive function. Um, an interesting study. So uh, from the Swedish, uh, they did a large review of um, their patients in a national database. And what they found was that um, folks with trauma or trauma-related complaints or PTSD have a significantly increased risk of developing an autoimmune disease. Very high. 
um, and they listed about 41 different autoimmune diseases. They said they were 30 to 40 percent more likely than their non-traumatized controls to develop these autoimmune. So Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, all of these things. Um, one thing that uh, this study showed was that, um, actually, I'm sorry, it's this study. The higher the level of PTSD, the higher PTSD score, the more somatic symptoms and the worse severity of the symptoms. So if they have chronic pain, they're going to have worse chronic pain because their PTSD is worse. And this is just a schematic looking at cortisol release and it weakens the immune system. It causes all of these problems, digestive issues. You can get higher risk of getting uh, diabetes or insulin resistance, high blood pressure, heart disease. So a bunch of really unpleasant things. So let's talk a little bit about polyvagal theory. Has anyone heard of this? I see some, some no's, a couple of yeses. All right. Um, so polyvagal, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because of this. So in normal life, right, we have social engagement. We're connected to safety. We're oriented to our environment. We're feeling all these great things. This is where we want to be. This is where we want to live. And it used to be, when I was taught um, neuroanatomy uh, a million years ago, even though I had a really good teacher, um, it was parasympathetic is your rest and digest, and sympathetic is your fight or flight. And so we were taught as osteopaths that if people were having pain, they were more in fight or flight. But then there's other people who seem like they're worse. They're just, they don't care, they're blunted, all these things. And so uh, a gentleman named Stephen Porges, who's a neuroanatomist and neuroscientist, did some research. And what he found was that embryologically, developmentally, that the vagus and the parasympathetic is really divided into two separate systems with two separate functions. So the ventral vagus is what we typically think of as our rest and digest parasympathetic. That's the ventral vagus. And that's a newer system because as we went from uh, less advanced animals, we became more advanced. And one of the advantages of being human and is the social engagement piece. That's really where we get safety. So we learned that by banding together, we would have more safety, more access to resources. And then we get into sympathetic, okay, where you start getting all these fight or flight symptoms, right? Flight symptoms, panic, fear, anxiety, worry, fight symptoms, rage, anger, irritation, frustration. And what they found was also there's folks who freeze. So they go from hyperarousal to hypoarousal. And this is the dorsal vagus. So this is a second system that's much older. And this is our system that kicks in when we perceive threat to our life or something on that level. This is what's responsible for someone gets scared and they pass out, right? It's our bodies and nature's way of saying, you don't have to go through this awful thing of the animal eating you. You'll just go to sleep. So, um, but there are patients that we're going to see that kind of live here. They're just kind of shut down. They feel hopeless. 
They can't see alternatives. These are the people who commit suicide. I mean, these are people who can only see one option. They're not able to access other options. They're prepared for, for death, and that's you know, a pretty sad place to be. They're helpless. But these, there's a lot of people walking around who kind of seem like this, and these are the folks who really push our buttons as providers um, because we want them to get better, and we know what's going to help them, but maybe they don't do it, and the weeks go by, the months go by, the years go by, and it's like, oh, are they ever going to get it together? Um, maybe, maybe not. So the last concept to really go through is neuroception. So this comes out of the polyvagal work. Um, and this is, whereas perception is a conscious interpretation of data, neuroception is unconscious. This is just happening all the time when we're taking in information. This is, all gets filtered through the limbic lobe and all those wonderful structures that make sure we're not getting into uh, situations where there's threat and all that, um, and it happens in a second. Right? This, is, this is very fast, neuroception, and it's tied into your nervous system, your gut, all this, your body, and what they've found is that people can perceive threat much faster subconsciously than it consciously registers. I, I'm, I don't know how many people have experienced you know, something you know, scary, but um, you know, people freeze. They just feel, right? They've perceived the threat, but they can't act on it because the consciousness is too slow. So keep that in mind because um, there are things we can do that will trigger our patients through this process of neuroception. And there's ways for us not to do those things. Medical procedures can be very stressful and triggering for patients. So it's important for us to know when we're suggesting something that this may be a source of triggering a past trauma. And it's, it's a subconscious process. They don't understand why. And in the subconscious, we have knowns and unknowns. It's pretty simple. Knowns are pleasure and safety. Unknowns are pain and threat. So when we're telling people who have no idea how to do yoga, who barely you know, move, Oh, well, you got to do yoga, blah, blah, blah. That can actually seem threatening to them, right? They can, they can take that as, you know, we're asking them to do something that's unknown. They don't know what they are doing yoga. They don't know what it's like to do yoga. So telling them, right, is, is painful. Not the telling, but them thinking about doing it is painful in the subconscious. All right. Chronic pain. So pain affects more people than diabetes, heart disease, and cancer combined. It's one of the most common reasons for people to visit a doctor. Obviously, it's a common reason to have a big conference because it affects all of us, right? The CDC estimated there's about 20 million, uh, I'm sorry, 20% of the American public that has chronic pain, um, about 50 million people. Of that, about 9 million um, I'm sorry, 8%, I'm messing this up, 8% or 19, basically 20 million, have high-impact chronic pain. And high-impact chronic pain is pain that's lasted greater than three months, and that's associated with a loss of one activity. 
So they're unable to go to work. They're unable to go outside the home. They can't go to school. They can't do their chores. And that really sounds like a lot of my patients. So when I read that, it made a lot of sense to me. And it costs about $560 billion a year in terms of lost wages, disability, all these things. So there's a big cost to this. Now, PTSD and chronic pain has been studied. And there's actually a high percentage of folks who have chronic pain who have PTSD. Anywhere from 35 36% to about 50% when we're talking about chronic low back pain. That's half of our patients that we see for chronic low back pain that have PTSD, whether it's diagnosed or not. And this has been studied, whoops, um, this has been studied in the journal Pain. They looked at a group of 32 outpatients who had combat and terror-related PTSD. They compared them with controls. And what they found was that the folks with PTSD had higher rates of chronic pain and more severe chronic pain than folks who didn't have PTSD. There was another study that looked at this that said the depression was worse and they had more likely to have alcohol or substance use disorders. So emotional pain can amplify physical pain. Okay. All right. So how is the traumatized chronic pain patient different from the RCP or the regular chronic pain patient? I got made fun of for putting that in. So I thought I'd point it out to you. Um, so they're more likely to have PTSD, which means they're more likely to have those behaviors, avoidance, intrusive thoughts, um, all of that, negative self-beliefs. Um, they may be in hyper or hypoarousal. They may be resistant to change or ideas because we're suggesting something that seems painful to them. They may not have the gumption. They may not have the wherewithal to make the changes that we want. People who have been traumatized just overall have less resources financially and otherwise. These are not folks who have access to, you know, great insurance that will pay for them to get acupressure, you know, whatever. Um, Remember that these people all survived their trauma. And in surviving the trauma, they developed all kinds of behaviors that allowed them to survive trauma. But then they carry those into adulthood and they carry those later into life. And those same behaviors that allowed them to survive are the same ones that are now dysfunctional. So we want to keep that in mind. They're more likely to be depressed, dysphoric, and they're more likely to have central sensitization. So central sensitization. Here's just a list of different pain syndromes that are associated with central sensitization syndrome. And I'll probably say this five more or six more times. That's a little challenging at this time of the day. Um, But central sensitization syndrome is a process where when people have experienced trauma, they're more likely to have two particular complaints. Allodynia, which is non-noxious stimuli, becomes now painful. So we're talking about proprioception, we're talking about light touch, we could be talking about the, the touch that you get from ice, things like that, which typically wouldn't be painful, and they're not neurologic information that should be painful, but they become painful. That's allodynia. And hyperalgesia. So what is painful is very painful. 
what's very painful is excruciating. And this is associated with cognitive deficits, increased emotional distress, particularly anxiety, so low GABA. So think about your bad fibromyalgia patients with this. That's a form of central sensitization. And when I encounter that, I, I definitely take things in a different direction. So at this point, without going off topic, is there anything I've spoken about that I could clarify? Everybody good? All right, let's move on. So now let's get into trauma-informed care. So there's six core principles, and they're, they're listed in different ways. This is one way of describing the six principles. I wrote down safety and trustworthiness, transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment and choice, and understanding cultural and gender and historical issues. And we keep those things in mind so that we can apply them to our encounters with our patients. So I just wrote down some different ideas I had, partnering with patients and families, providing cues for safety, maintaining a melodic voice, that's called prosody, be open and welcoming, be curious, treat them with respect, all this stuff that you can read. I, I don't like reading what's up on a slide. So when we're in an encounter, what's different? So a lot of things. So I see a lot of chronic pain folks, and I also do addiction work. Um, what I want from my office is that it doesn't look like a doctor's office. So I'm, in my office, I have the walls painted kind of a beautiful you know, dark blue, which people have said is calming. Um, I try and keep the sounds low and peaceful. I have a lot of little noise generators throughout the place, especially in my exam rooms, that make natural sounds. You can get these things you know, cheap on Amazon, and they you know, have the sound of a rainforest, or they have the sound of water running, something that just is soothing to someone. Um, the magazines that you have in the office, are these glamour mags? Are these other mags? So what is the message we're sending? What are we telling our patients? A big one is training your staff, right? Because the staff are the people who are going to make first contact with the patient, take phone call, set them up for an appointment, greet them when they come in. If they're not knowledgeable about the trauma-informed principles, they're not as likely, well, they're certainly not going to think about using them, um, but they're also more likely to do behaviors that are actually triggering. And every interaction we have with a patient, or with really anyone, is a chance to either um, make something therapeutic and positive happen, or to go in the other direction. So I talk to my staff, especially front desk and the phone people, um, about this, about creating openness when they talk, about uh, you know, when people call and they've, you know, missed an appointment or they're having some issue and they're dysregulated, this is not the time to teach them a lesson or to put them in their place, okay? This is the time for them to be open, get them in the office so we can de-escalate the situation. And that's really tough for a lot of folks, right? They can't get themselves out of their, out of their own way. And sometimes they're affecting our patients without us knowing. And are we doing the same thing? Are we maintaining openness? Are we talking to people um, 
respectfully? Are we teaching the patients a lesson? Are we listening or interrupting? Do we have a hard edge? Are we fostering these principles? So other things that I do, I take a trauma history. I'll ask about PTSD, if they've been diagnosed. I'll ask about if they've ever had any traumatic events. And to be clear, I'll often tell them, I don't need to know. You don't have to tell me what it was. I just want to know if you believe that there was trauma in your past. Because, you know, a lot of times you're doing this on the first visit. That's not the time to get into, oh, I was, you know, raped by my uncle repeatedly, you know, when I was six. Um, you, you want people to feel comfortable divulging it. And remember, for some of these folks, they don't recognize it. They don't know it was traumatic because that's just how they grew up. If you grow up in kind of a violent area, violence seems normal. So you may not think that it's traumatic. So, you know, probe a little deeper. Be cr curious about it. Um, I ask about mental health issues. I ask about medical problems. Um, I ask about anything that might tip me to central sensitization. I do a family history of... Is there alcoholism or substance use disorder, depression, mental health in the family? And their parents, are they together or divorced? What was the encounters? And we do screenings, right? We're supposed to do screenings when we're prescribing um, opiates. Opiate risk tool, soap bar, DAS-10, all these things. And I do these in my office, and I also do a catastrophe scale but it's just part of the picture. I'm not going to deny someone treatment because they have a history of trauma, right? And, and we're dangerously close to that happening in a lot of places. When I'm talking with people, I try and avoid deep resonant sounds because deep resonant sounds sound more angry to people, right? If there's a tiger in the forest and it's growling, it's usually a deep resonant sound. So it signals danger to our patients. So you keep your voice musical. You keep it moving. Maintain eye contact, but don't stare. It's not a time to, you know, stare at people and be confrontational. Touch. So a lot of people have issues with touch who have been traumatized. I'm an osteopathic physician, so I do a lot of manipulation, and I depend on my hands to give me a lot of information. But usually not on the first visit. You know, I'll, I'll often even tell them, you know, I, I'm just doing an observational exam today. Next time I'm going to get more into, you know, this. If they have trauma, if it's just, you know, you know Joe, Joe who's coming in with just acute back strain, we're not talking about the same issues, okay? So I'll avoid touch. I'll be very clear about why I'm examining when I'm examining, how I'm going to do it. Um, it's not your time to do a full physical. I had a colleague in Maine who thought every interaction was a chance to do a full physical, including a rectal. So yeah, he'd be admitting people to the hospital for you know, a lower extremity cellulitis, and you know, they would get a rectal, and there's no need, okay? It's, it's gratuitous. This is also the same doc who uh, a shared patient went to and said they were having a lot of pain and they couldn't get around, and his response was, well, you sure walked fine to the refrigerator. So, yes, that's, that's my example of what not to do. Okay, so there are some specific treatments, and I know we're running a little short on time because we started late, um, but I do want to get through this for you guys. So there are a few treatments that 
I recommend to just about anyone with a trauma history or PTSD, um, one is exercise, okay? I specifically, you know, go pretty hard in recommending exercise, and I encourage my patients. I cajole. I don't demand and I don't make it, you know, a threat. You do this or I'm cutting off your meds. Um, that doesn't work. A lot of them don't know how to exercise, so I show them. I'll show them simple things when they're in the office. How do you do a proper squat? And even if they can only go down this much, I'll say go down that much. Just do it every day. Exercise has been shown, mild aerobic exercise. So we're not talking about aggressive, you know, people hitting the gym and, you know, running 10 miles. Mild aerobic exercise has been linked to decreased pain levels, improved quality of life scores, improved mood, decreased depression, all of that. And why, right? You increase your dopamine levels. It actually helps to restore dopamine levels when they've been chronically low. Um, and it does it in a very slow and gradual fashion, which is what the body likes. So I push it. And I do want to mention quickly two meds that I am pretty hot on lately. Um, there'll be lots of great lectures, I'm sure, about some of these. Ketamine is one. So oral ketamine uh, can be very beneficial for a lot of your patients, both in terms of their pain levels and their mood. Um, and I have been using it a lot. You have to have it compounded. It's not available commercially, so you need to know a good compounding pharmacy that you can utilize. Um, and I usually start people at half or one milligram per kilogram um, for ketamine in divided doses. So if it's 100 milligrams a day, I'll give them 25 QID. Um, and then go up from there. And, and I've really had good results from this. And the other is naltrexone. Naltrexone is interesting. It's an opiate blocker, but in low doses, it's been studied for pain and autoimmune disease. And it's specifically for folks with some of the central sensitization syndromes, it's really quite useful. Um, so if I'm having people who just, you know, maybe they're on, you know, some opiate, um, even, you know, buprenorphine derivative, and they're not doing well, I'll sometimes encourage them, let's get you off this and try on naltrexone. Um, you know, they always think it's because of the state, but, you know, I say, no, it's because I think you're just going to feel better. So uh, the other thing that I really push is counseling, okay, and specifically CBT-based or ACT, acceptance commitment therapy-based, trauma-based counseling. So it needs to be someone who's skilled in trauma um, as a counselor so they're not going to re-traumatize people because you approach people differently. You, it's not the time for them to get their story out. Often just that is re-traumatizing. So you need people who are skilled in that. And folks who do EMDR, uh, eye movement, desensitization by rapid motion, they tend to be trauma-trained. Um, so if you you know, develop relationships with people who do this kind of counseling, they can really be beneficial. Acceptance commitment therapy is a type of CBT. I'm just hoping everybody knows what CBT is. Um, and it's goal-oriented. It's been studied uh, in chronic pain. And it specifically lowers chronic pain levels and improves quality of life scores. So this is an intervention that they can do that is non-pharmacologic that really helps with their pain levels. Um, it presupposes that, yes, bad things happen to you, but that was in the past. How do we achieve your goals now? Let's define and achieve goals. 
Uh, hypnosis. Now I'm a little biased because I do both of these. I'm a hypnotist and a, or a hypnotherapist and I do osteopathic medicine. So this is certainly a bias of mine, but I've had very good results with using hypnosis in people who have trauma, anxiety, sleep issues, helping them quit smoking, all sorts of compulsive behaviors because you're helping tie the subconscious into what your conscious goals are. And that's how I think about it. So if you have a good hypnotherapist in your area or you can develop relationships with one, they can be pretty helpful for you for folks who are really stuck, help you get over those and help them get over those sticking points. And, you know, if we got all our patients to quit smoking, so many of them would feel better. I'm not saying they'd be fixed, but they'd feel better. All right. And so some of this stuff has really been studied pretty extensively. So CBT, they've done functional MRI studies with folks doing CBT, pre and post CBT, I should say. Whoops. Um, and post CBT, yeah, going the wrong way. I'm out of control. Um, Post-CBT, they found more activation of the frontal cortex in functional MRI. So that is pretty good proof that we're making changes when we do these interventions. So summation and take-home points. Trauma is a deeply distressing and disturbing experience that results from exposure to an inescapable event that overwhelms the nervous system. Trauma is common in our society and more so in the chronic pain. PTSD is associated with increased reward behavior, frontal lobe inhibition, loss of executive function. Neuroception is the unconscious process of perceiving threat. We use six principles in trauma-informed care. We like to use aerobic exercise, CBT, ACT, hypnosis, OMT, which have all been shown to decrease pain and improve quality of life scores. We use prosody in our voice. And I would say the two words that I keep in mind is empathy. I don't have to know what my patient went through to feel like I want to help them um, and know that they're suffering. And curiosity. So instead of getting upset when they act out like I did with this one patient, um, I'm curious. What is going on? What is going on with them? What is going on with me? So I keep those in mind, and those are my last thoughts for everybody here. I hope you all have a great conference. Thank you so much.